Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 157, recorded on August 7th of 2021, uh, the Photo Geekery Show, where uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and I spend time throughout the week uh, digesting all of the photographic news and finding the geekiest stories through the bunch to put together for this very podcast. And uh, not to say that we're the geekiest podcast out there, uh, but we try to be at least through the weekly news cycle. And here we are once again. Uh, with a co-host this week, my very geeky and technical and talented friend, Steve Brazel. Steve, welcome back to the show. How are you, my friend? It's good to see your face. I am good. I'm good. We a couple of days ago we did the uh, behind the shot critique show that uh, that you host, uh, and that was wonderful. Uh, wonderful with um, Adam Elmacias, and yeah. uh, I, you know, you can find that. Uh, I encourage everybody to check out that conversation because I had a ton of fun. It's not like I haven't been talking to you. Um, a lot of comments on that one. One person, Rami or Romy, who's been going through all my shows and commenting, has left like five comments. He's going through the pictures on his own, and putting down what he would say, which I love that people are getting that involved. That's a neat idea, actually. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And, and again, comments were great. Terry, who had a picture in there, left a wonderfully nice comment. Uh, and always, and, and the nice thing is we get a very unique guest each time. Uh, sometimes it's a landscape photographer that's well-known. Sometimes it's a portrait or food photographer or a music photographer like we did this week. And the that and doing this with you are the highlights of my month. Well, thank you, Steve. I should have you on the podcast more often. You know, if I look at the back end of the photogeekweekly.com website and see um, what people are searching for, your name comes up number one. So by that metric, people like the episodes that you are on. You do not disappoint. So the pressure is on this week. Or they're looking for the episodes to avoid. I don't think so. It's generally be. not the way the internet works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into uh, uh, into our uh, stories of the day, of the week, um, what have you been up to lately? Have you been shooting anything at all? Yes, I have. I've got a, a new gig now that shows are coming back. There's a small arena, like 18,000 seat arena near me, and uh, I am their house photographer for concerts. We've had two concerts. Both felt really odd to be at a concert. I'm fully vaccinated, but it still felt odd. Masks make you feel a little more comfortable, but even then it feels odd. But I've shot those. I've got another one coming up, a country artist coming up next uh, Saturday. And uh, just bought a whole bunch of new gear. I'm I, Instead of going slowly, I dove head first and bought two bodies and three lenses in the Canon uh, R system. Uh, okay, R5, so you, well, you, you gotta you gotta give us the specs. You can't just drop that and leave. What did you so buy? And why? I bought a I bought an R five, I bought an R six, I bought a fifteen to thirty five, which was hard to find, a twenty four to seventy, and a seventy to uh, two hundred, and then I bought a lens that I'll save it. I bought a lens that we're going to talk about today too. Except I bought a, the contemporary version, not the sport version. Okay, well, um, that's. Uh, why the R5 and the R6? I mean, just to have different uh, bodies with different lenses at the same time? Yeah, I always carry two bodies at a concert. My left hip is always a wide angle in case, you know, a, a singer or a guitarist comes right into my face or sticks their, you know, foot in my face, you know, for some reason. And then the normal either 24 to 70 or 70 to 200 is usually on my right hip. I could have gone two R5s. I wouldn't have done two R6s. I'm used to my 5D Mark 
three and four, which are, you know, 24 and 30 respectively megapixels. But I don't need two 45 megapixel bodies. And so I chose to mix it up and go one wide and one not and see how that works. Yeah. Although when the R3 comes out, Jeff Cable is shooting the R3 right now at the Olympics. And I asked him a question the other day and his answer was intriguing. Well, well, what did you ask and what was the answer? So I'm sitting back as a live music photographer debating, do I want to do electronic shutter, electronic first curtain or mechanical? And generally with what I shoot, which is, you know, high, fast moving action, you don't use an electronic shutter because you get rolling shutter. You get a a bowing effect as things move the way that the lines read out on on the sensor. So I was going to use mechanical shutter. And Jeff made the comment. He did a whole post on his workflow, which, by the way, on Jeff Cable's blog is a great read on his workflow. And in there, he made the comment. I'm at the Olympics and I'm shooting up to 30 frames a second, which immediately made me say, well, the R5 is 20 frames a second, which tells me the R3 we know is 30. So you're shooting the R3. There's no question he's admitted that. But he said, and so I have to process, you know, 2000 images from a one hour water polo game. And I said to him, I'm a little confused. I've always understood that for fast action like water polo, you would not want to use a 30 frame a second electronic shutter because somebody shooting the ball, their arm is going to curve. And his response was, it depends which body I'm shooting, comma, hint, hint. <laughs> well, I, I think we've been marching closer and closer to a global shutter. Um, exactly. That's not to say that it has it, but uh, if but you it get cl- may be. It, it may be, or, you know, it's just the readouts are so fast that it's like immaterial for the speed of right. human movement, but it might still be noticeable in some like mechanical stuff like airplane propellers and uh, and other things like that that have a noticeable bend uh, due to that rolling shutter effect. Now, I, I use a uh, mechanical shutter most of the time, except when uh, when I'm in my studio. And I'm doing extremely high magnification stuff, uh, like using microscope objectives, and I'm using continuous light. Because if I'm using continuous light and a mechanical shutter at, say, 10 or 20 times magnification, the shutter itself shakes the camera enough to blur the images. Oh, yeah. So uh, it, it's even not just like, the shutter, even if you do a mirror lockup? Well, I don't, we have, don't a have a mirror, mirror lockup. It's mirrorless. So it, yeah. Okay. It, yeah. it is just it's the just shutter. The shutter yeah. Uh, and so th- that's enough to, to, to blur the critical details. And so an electronic shutter is helpful, but those are static subjects. And so you don't really have Why to worry about. Why do you use about, mechanical shutter other times though? Uh, to use flash. Oh, right. So if I'm See, using and therein, continu- therein lies the other rub. Yeah. Right. So uh, if I'm if I'm using a an electronic shutter, I don't have the ability to use flash with that. So uh, it's one or the other, depending on the subject and, and how I'm shooting it. See, I um, can use flash with an electronic shutter at a one two fiftieth sync speed on these. Right, but I I tend to, and I've been doing this a lot more lately. Uh, shoot with the high resolution mode on my S series Lumix bodies um, because that'll quadruple my resolution. However, you cannot use a flash with that turned on, right. um, so it it has to go to electronic uh, shutter. Uh, partly, I guess, due to the fact that the shutter mechanism itself does move the camera to some degree, and if you're doing sub pixel shifts to increase the resolution, you're yep. working against yourself there. So right. I'm not sure if there's a proper solution to that um, that would use a mechanical shutter and flash to achieve the same results. Uh, but I'm fine with the system the way that it works. You just got to know what puzzle pieces fit together for you. 
But but those type of comments from people are always interesting to me in that, okay, now I have now I actually have a physical use model of something I might be looking forward to. Right. Well, uh, let's see what happens with that R3, man. It's looking like it's going to be a... a, a, a I, they didn't make it an R1. So that means that they are aiming higher at some point for a quote-unquote flagship. Um, but there hasn't been a 3-series camera in many, many years. So we'll see what happens looking forward and, to that. And keep in mind, the 3 is considered a pro body to them. That's a big differentiation between Nikon and Canon is, is that a number of top Nikon bodies, the the company itself looks at them as pro bodies, which is why you have AF point moving, spot metering moving with your AF point. Canon has always seen the five series as prosumer. I don't Internally. know if that's, in t- uh, well, when I, I know for a am- fact, it's true. When I was a member of uh, Canon Professional Services here in Canada, in order to qualify for that, uh, yeah, I, any 5D series body would have qualified you for a pro level of service from CPS. Um, Correct. But, that's, but, but feature set wise, they see it as prosumer, not pro. Well, yeah. Uh, then why did they never bring dual pixel uh, raw to the 1DX Mark II when it had dual pixel autofocus? You know, there, there, there was features missing from those camera bodies. And I mentioned that before, and I won't go terribly far down that rabbit hole. But um, we do have other rabbit holes to go down uh, for do this it. episode. So story number one uh, from DP Review. Leica's first smartphone, the Lights Phone 1, hits the Japanese market. Now, it's not the first time that a camera manufacturer has made a phone. Uh, Panasonic did one that I don't think made it to North America under the Lumix brand as well. And it wasn't a, a huge success. Um, but there's precedent for that, especially because Leica has lent their design fundamentals to other cameras, uh, uh, other phones as well. And then their name has been used on them. Um, so here we have the, uh, the Lights Phone 1. Now, looking at this thing, I think it actually looks really nice uh, in, in terms of a phone design. It's got like a matte black finish that kind of is slightly inset to a, a silver, I'm assuming aluminum body uh, that just, it just connects together really nicely. It's got a bit of a ridged side on it, which is one of the features I really liked about the red hydrogen because you'd be able to grip it a lot better. It wouldn't slip out of your hand that well. This is a better looking ridge than the red, I think though. I think it is. Well, the the red one was very pronounced, and this is quite was notches, subtle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so it's got a lot of design fundamentals that look like it's going well. And then I look at the, the the camera bump on the back, as one does. You know, it's a prominent feature on a lot of cameras, and you've got this large circular camera bump. Uh, and Steve, can here it comes. So <laughs> sorry, sorry. You know, I I'm trying to get my head around this. Uh, you've got uh, an outer circle. It's a circle. Okay. Then there's an inner circle, but before you get to the inner circle in the area where you've got the word Sumacron and some other labels for the type of lens and the word Leica, there is a camera, uh, in that outer ring, just randomly off to the side somewhere. Okay. And a flash somewhere in there as well. So there, there's that. Then inside the central ring, there is another camera looks to have a larger lens. This is probably your main camera that you would be using. And it's not centered. It's off to the side. Why? Why would you, you're designing this concentric circles going in towards this central. Why is that central lens when everything else is begging for it to be centered, 
my OCD is going crazy right now, Steve. Why is that central uh, camera not centered in the camera bump? Well, okay, I'll tell you what I think. And first of all, a couple things need to be noted about this particular phone. It is a, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to search for the, the, the words I'm looking for. It's basically a redone Sharp Aquas R6. Yeah. Uh, now, in terms of the internals. Rebranded and the, slightly redesigned. If you look at the two ex, uh, externals of the uh, of the devices, uh, they're significantly different in a sense. Um, however, I think I know what you're going to describe is because- If you if, look at the camera on the back of the Sharp, yep. the flash is in the upper right corner, the uh, meter's in the bottom left, you've got the lens on the left, and they've used a rectangle box- if you took out the rectangle and you put a circle around them, that's exactly what you have on this body. They just, they're re, they're rebranding and redesigning is to simply take the square out, put a circle in. And by the way, this is not a small camera bump. You mentioned it's a camera bump like all phones have. This thing is a big enough bump to actually hold a lens cap. So that lends me into a couple of interesting things. But before we get there, that's a stupid idea to just, make it a circle instead of a rectangle and have yeah. the lens just off-centered like that, it just looks like a fundamental design engineering mistake. Uh, but, he, but here's the thing. Would it if... So, so one other thing people need to understand is, unlike every other smartphone in the world pretty much nowadays that's a smartphone of any value, they all have wide and telly, at least, if not ultra-wide, wide, and telly. This only has one, but if you stuck a triangle of lenses in there, it would make more sense. Yeah. Uh, and so then if you had a second lens within that, you know, having two of them in that central space equally distant from that center point, then that would work out really well. And if they um, move that one to the middle right now, it would be too close to the flash. I uh, bet you that's why they did it. The lens that they're using needs a proximity to the flash. Maybe, yeah, because I, I, I can see that. But it just, it seems so wrong to be so concerned about circles and symmetry and then completely destroy that in the end result. It, it just- It looks like a dartboard and somebody missed. Yep, it does. Um, now, back to that lens cap idea. Now, this is kind of neat. Uh, it, it is a pronounced bump so that, you know, a lens cap can grab it. Now, I believe it's magnetic. And that's where I things- hope. I think I read somewhere that it was magnetic. And uh, now that means that you have to have really strong magnets in order to it make does. that work. I just read it. It says magnetic. Uh, but that also means that this is uh, opportunity for camera accessories to be magnetically attached to that camera bump. And so if you wanted to have a close-up adapter, if you wanted to have a telephoto adapter, if you wanted to have um, something that would be like an artsy filter, like a physical uh, like sort of a mist filter or something that you could throw on there for artistic effects without having to rely on the computational elements, um, have, I don't know, some crazy lens baby attachment where you can just bend and muck with light um, that could attach to the- Anamorphic um, lens. Uh, well, I mean, that requires a bit more complexity. Um, but Could be done. 
still, the idea, anamorphic lenses are actually two separate optical systems built into a, a single package. And so you, you have one of them that actually flips things around upside down, and then another one that flips it back. And so without software to properly interpret an anamorphic lens, not only uh, will the, uh, the squish ratio be wrong, but it'll also be upside down. Yeah, but you can uh, do that in post. You, you can, can put I'm an just, anamorphic lens on a on an Osmo Pocket and and do it in post. So right, uh, I'm just saying that there, there's a few hoops that you'd have to jump through. Um, the The phone itself is no slouch, right? The, it's using a Qualcomm Snapdragon 888 5G chip. It's got 12 gigabytes of RAM, 256 gigabytes of storage. Um, it's got a 6.6 inch WUXGA OLED display, which translates to a resolution of 1260 by 2730 resolution. That's vertical. Um, and uh, the main camera, or the, the the selfie camera, has a 12 megapixel resolution. It's an f2.3 uh, lens. Uh, so you got cameras galore decent specs and it's you know branded like a, and i like the design except for the fact that the camera just seems like it's an afterthought uh, in terms you, of the design and the fundamentals you read the selfie lens the the main lens is f1.9 oh, uh, and 20.2 megapixels yeah 20.2 megapixels it's a 19 millimeter equivalent six time digital zoom there is no optical zoom and here is my pro first of all this is an android phone this is android 11 so let's be clear on that, okay? I, I have two questions, and that is one, okay, cool, it's got a lens cap that says Leica and it's magnetic, neat. Is your lens that gentle? I mean, I put my, magnetic or not, it's going to come off in my pocket most likely. I'm going to lose that lens cap somewhere. Are you telling me that your glass is that gentle? But either way, their marketing to me is marketing run wild. The first smartphone to combine uncompromising quality Peerless optical engineering and image software mastery with iconic Leica design. Okay, killed me on the design there. Yeah. Something inside me says that Leica's computational photography and AI are nowhere near Apple and Android right now. I would agree entirely. Uh, and yet uh, that's and their marketing. It's only because, and they're saying that they have their own proprietary software suite. I can't find the name of it uh, off the top of my head. It was in this article, but, um, and, and it, it's in there that, that like is very proud of their software interpretation uh, of the data, but you got to know that Apple and, uh, and, and Google and Samsung and, and all of these people, they've got, uh, you know, buildings full of staff and engineers working on their computational yeah. photography. Um, I'm not saying Leica can't get to that same level, but they would have to spend far more than the entire R&D that they're spending across their entire product lines right now to get there. Uh, it's just orders of magnitude different in terms of the dollars that are being thrown at the problem. Yeah, and and by the way, this sensor is a one-inch sensor, which I thought was interesting, but they have, they're saying that they're, it, it's the, the software engine does raw JPEG, of course. The light engine, it says, yeah. Yeah, the lights engine, that's it. Computational color correction, noise reduction, edge refinement, and bokeh. And then they add on top of that something called the lights looks mode, which again, marketing people, I can barely say it one time fast. And they quote, uh, say this, extraordinarily sharp black and white images with a typical Leica camera look and feel based on the visual language of the flagship Leica M monochrome and they will release more of these looks but again i just go back to every camera on the market has a black and white mode 
every camera on the market usually has filters and you can do a ton of them. I, I'm, I'm not seeing anything in this that makes me say, that's the phone. Yeah, if they came out with an adapter that could uh, slap magnetically on the back that would let you use your M rangefinder lenses on your phone, I think that would be a neat uh, little nod to the the Leica tradition and the kind of you know sensibilities that a Leica photographer through and through would enjoy. But we're not seeing anything like that. But um, I, I want to ask you: What if those Steve, magnets though violate MagSafe patents, Apple MagSafe patents? Yeah, that well, could uh, be but, interesting. I think the MagSafe is on a flat surface, and this would be on on like a ring uh, where you're grabbing. We don't know uh, where the magnets right. are. Uh, the magnets could know, be on the back true. of the phone. There, that's true. Um, hmm. Yeah. Good luck with that, Leica. I guess. Uh, hope you, hopefully you're not violating patents in the process. I'm I'm assuming that they've got enough uh, smarts to to have looked at those patents and and figured out one way or another. But that won't stop somebody from suing um, if you think you're close. Um, but I want to ask you, Steve, uh, you know, Sharp, the uh, Aquos R9, nobody's really thought of Sharp as a phone manufacturer, but, you know, that's what this is based on. Sony, I also came across my, my news feed on F-stoppers, um, uh, that uh, is Sony's Xperia 1 III, the ultimate phone for photographers, uh, and Kai W uh, did a video on that. You know, we, we think that it's Apple, or it's like a Google Pixel, or it's a Samsung Galaxy, and that's really all we have to play with. But... Um, do you think that there's room for new players to come in here? Does Sony still have ground? Does Sharp have the ability to gain market share here? And does Leica have any chance, if they do some things right, to be a player as well? I, I think the deciding factor on your question is out of all of their hands. Because one of the problems when, when Google first came out with phones one of the biggest problems that they had was getting carriers to have them in stores. And yeah. Apple has its own stores. But if Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile and Orange and, you know, insert phone retailer here doesn't have your phone for people to touch, buying online only from Google, having no real phone support, having no store to walk into, that's going to affect you. That said, Sony Xperia's are popular. I, I have a client of mine who has been using Sony phones forever and swears by them, loves them. And this phone has a lot that looks really interesting to me until I watch the video. First of yeah. all, Kai W, I love. Always have. I think he's funny. But he really picks out the things that make no sense in this phone and the focal lengths are one of them. Yeah, and so you've got uh, 16, 24, 70, 105 millimeters in a phone with optical image stabilization on the longer of those three. It's impressive, uh, and that's all in 35 millimeter uh, equivalents. But one of the features that I, I didn't check to see if it was in here, maybe it is, maybe uh, you know, Steve, uh, the, the Xperia 1, the, the first one, it had a, um, a super high frame rate mode. I think it was like 990 frames per second or something. They took that out of the Xperia 2. Uh, and I was looking to do some fun experimental video for some documentary shooting, and I needed that high frame rate. You can rent a Phantom. There's other cameras that cost, you know, more than my car um, that can do it. But if I could just get away with having, and it doesn't have to be long, and I don't care if it only records for a fraction of a second, I can time that appropriately in order to get that work. 
Did the Xperia 1 3 bring back that super high frame rate? I did not see that. And if you didn't see it, then it's probably not there because it would be a good talking point. It would uh, be odd to get rid of a feature and then bring it back. So I'm going to guess no, but don't quote me on that. There, there are some other interesting things in there. Like, for example, it's an Android phone, but Android being technically open source, Sony has done some things. The camera interface is almost like using an alpha. Yep. Yeah, and, and uh, so anybody familiar with a Sony camera, I mean, it's you don't have to learn relearn things too heavily. Uh, although, honestly, when I'm pulling out my phone, which is an iPhone, to take pictures, uh, you know, I, I might flip it into the portrait mode or I might just leave it on the regular mode and I just press the button to take the picture. I, I don't really use it as uh, as if, I mean, I've got the creative control and I can shoot raw with it and all of that. But if I'm going to be doing that, I'm going to be using my my main heavy lifting cameras. Uh, and so I don't necessarily- Or you're not going to be using the built-in app. Like I use Halide on, of course, yeah. on the iPhone, even though I can shoot, you know, Apple raw. But again- you know, they've got OIS on all the lenses except the ultra-wide, the 16 millimeter. That's common. Oh, uh, yeah. Selfie camera's 8 megapixels. But if you look at it, it's 16 to 24, so you're jumping 8 millimeters there. From 70 to 105, okay, you're going 35 millimeters. But that jump from 24 to 70. There's nothing in between, right? And that, that say, like a 35 to 50 millimeter range is so common. Uh, yeah. And it's missing. You're, you're, you're jumping 46 millimeters with no way to get there other than digital, I, I think that's going to be a problem. He did in the video, I highly recommend people watch the video, because here's what I wanted to know as soon as I watched it. When he, com when he did shot comparisons with an iPhone 11, now this was key. It's an iPhone 11 that he has. He says, I don't have the latest, yep. but you are comparing an old phone. The iPhone 12 was a pronounced jump in photographic quality, but still... He, in most cases, seemed to think that the Sony looked better, and I disagree. I think the iPhone photos, at least the way they came through the video, looked better. Watch the video, folks. Formulate your own opinions. But I, I think that it's really valuable to look outside the, um, uh, the, the main banners that are flying outside the, oh, yeah. uh, the, the smartphone stores and, and the cell phone retailers and so on. Because there are some great gems of uh, devices out there. There's, there's no such thing as a perfect phone. So find one that meets your own sensibilities, regardless of brand. However, that being said, make sure it's a brand that has some pedigree in the space. Because one of the reasons why I stopped using my red hydrogen as early as I did um, is because it stopped getting updates. Stopped getting security updates of any kind. And, uh, and that was a big deal breaker for me, especially, you know, now... I got iOS 14.7 uh, on my phone, and what, five days later, there was a security update to 14.7.1, and we don't know exactly what they fixed, uh, fixed, you know, uh, was it the... Uh, or fixed. Yeah, uh, the, uh, was it the Project uh, Pegasus? Was that what I'm yeah. thinking of? Yeah. Well, my it, guess it, is it's, it's pe something Pegasus related. Yeah, so uh, anyhow, we, we don't know, but Apple is so proactive on that, which is why I started to use that platform. So just make sure that it's, if it's from a company that you don't really, make sure that they've got a number of products out there and then you might be buying one of the newest flagship devices so that it has the, the longest level of support. Um, which brings me into our next story, uh, which 
it's it's just a lens announcement, but it was made to be a big deal by Sigma. They teased a um, uh, an announcement date of earlier this week on August 4th. And uh, so when a company teases that, they are trying to make a big splash. And they announced, uh, as reported by DP Review, the 150 to 600 millimeter F5 to 6.3 DG DN OS sports lens for Sony E-mount and Leica L-mount. Um, now, Steve, I believe you have a similar version of this lens. I believe you have the contemporary version. Uh, and that is on which mount? This is the Canon EF mount. This is the contemporary version. And the, the big difference between the sport and the contemporary is the weather ceiling. And strangely, the tripod collar. So the sports version, the tripod collar is an Arca Swiss plate. This is just a blob of metal and you have to go buy a plate. Um, there's a couple of other differences, but these are in what I shoot people who are not, you know, tour photographers and people that are just shooting shows and have to shoot from soundboard. There's a lot of music photographers that use the Sigma version, either in the sport or the contemporary, the, the sport being much more expensive. This was normally 1100 and I got it for nine and the sport for Canon mount is actually about eighteen hundred. These are fifteen hundred. I think yeah, fourteen ninety nine, and uh, and they say that the lens is uh, comprised of twenty five elements in fifteen groups. So it's a complex lens, um, including four FLD, which is a low dispersion glass. It's similar to fluorite. They still use FLD as the term for it and two SLD, which are special low dispersion elements, as well as super multi-layer coating that reduces flare and ghosting. Yeah, we've had super multi-coating stuff for decades. Forever. We don't really need to advertise this anymore. Um, uh, the focus elements are driven by a stepping motor. Uh, Built-in optical image type stabilizer can reduce shake by up to a claimed four stops. Um, now, uh, you mentioned the, the weather ceiling and so on, but I I'm guessing that this lens, uh, if it's a, it's a brand new lens, it's only available on two mirrorless bodies. They may have redesigned the optical formula specifically. It's not really a brand new lens, though. It's kind of the same lens as the current sport. It's just a new mount, except I don't think the current version has that zoom torque switch they're talking about. Well, I, you're, you're kind of jumping ahead of my words. Um, it, it's designed specifically, this version of it uh, is designed specifically for uh, the mirrorless uh, camera bodies, which in theory could reduce distances and allow different optical formulas to be utilized that could take advantage of the shorter flange distance. That's typically only coming into play when you're dealing with wide angle lenses um, that have to have some exotic rear element to spread out the light and make it hit things properly, which you can get around and, and find uh, better ways to do it when you can get that rear element much closer to the sensor. Um, not as much of an advantage, if any at all, when you're dealing with telephoto lenses. So even if the optical formula has changed, you're not going to see that much of a uh, like a visual performance increase from this version versus a flapping mirror design that would have been out previously. Yes, yeah, I agree with everything. The, the, the four stops of IS isn't great. Um, I would have liked to have, in this day and age, seen more, but that's what mine has, and it seems to work fine. The zoom torque switch I mentioned is interesting, though. I've never seen this before. Maybe it is on the normal contemporary for the EF mount. I don't know. But there's three positions, locked, tight, and smooth. Locked is obvious. And this is for th this is a zooming lens where it literally does telescope out. 
So you turn you turn the zoom ring and it moves out and you can lock it in position. You can make it tight where as you turn it, it goes out with some resistance. And then they're smooth. And the smooth lets you actually grab the far end of the lens bayonet where almost near where your filter mount would be and just push pull in and out like a Canon 100 to 400 lens. That Well, that, and that that 100 to 400 lens, uh, the the dust pump, as it were. Yes. Um, they, you know, there was a problem, obviously, with that design because it was sucking and blowing a lot of air in and out and taking all the dust and everything with it, which is, uh, you know, in a weather seal design like this, you almost don't want that to be something similar. But that 100 to 400 did have a ring uh, that wasn't, uh, you know, multiple positions. It was a fluidic, you know, you could tighten it to whatever point that you wanted or loosen it, and it would adjust the, the friction on there. I remember talking to somebody, I can't remember if it was from our local photo club way back when, but they had that lens. I, I had it too. Um, they, they had it and they tightened it too much uh, and then left it that way for a while and untightened it and that whole ring just fell apart. So um, obviously well, they're that's not, not using- good. No, uh, I've had issues with that lens too. And there's a, probably a pretty good reason why Canon replaced it. This doesn't look like it would have any of those design uh, problems. And it looks looks nice. Uh, I, I haven't been able to see. I mean, they've got a sample gallery on uh, on DP review, and they also have a sort of a hands on view of how it might look on a on a camera and how you can view it. And I, I took a look at some of the images. Um, and sample galleries, what they are, they're they're never going to be award winning shots, but you can judge critical clarity and sharpness and so on, uh, how the bokeh feels when things start to fall out of focus in the background, and get a sense for how it might uh, suit your needs. I like it. It looks good. And I'll tell you, for, for the price, for $1,500, that's a lot of glass. And yeah. I like Sigma glass. There is a, like on my contemporary version, there is an equivalent in the Tamron line too, if you prefer a Tamron, Tamron brand. But really for the amount of money at $1,500, even $1,800 for the sports version of this lens, it's a good lens. It is not going to be your sharpest lens in, in your toolbox. But will it get the job done? Oh yeah. Well, and without right going and spending, what's a six hundred million? What's six hundred million? What's a six hundred millimeter, you know, or even four hundred millimeter lens with a good aperture? Because by the way, this is variable aperture. It's it's five to six three. But what does that run? Right, a, a four hundred two point eight is ten thousand bucks, eight thousand well, bucks. It's priceless on the L mount because there isn't one, right? It, uh, Panasonic doesn't make a super telephoto lens, and neither does Leica. Uh, so Sigma coming in and producing this lens, this n- not only is it a great deal, but it fits a niche that nothing else is touching right now. At least for the L mount, there's a ton of stuff on the on the E mount already, so I can't make the same point there. But there's going to be a good market for it. Brings bird photography and sports photography to a new crowd. Absolutely. So uh, keep that in mind. Sigma seems to be really hot on this one. And uh, Steve, from your opinion, this is a lens to get if you need something that uh, doesn't cost you multiple thousands of dollars, especially as a hobbyist. Uh, to me, this looks like it's more than good enough. And and by the way, I, let me add the reason I'm holding the, the contemporary in my hand right now. One of the reasons I bought this also is I the way that I shoot and what I shoot I don't use a monopod. I don't use a tripod when I'm shooting. I'm hand-holding, and it's hanging from a rapid strap on my side a lot of times. This is pronouncedly lighter than the sport version. Aha. So if that's an issue to you, be aware of that. Good to know. 
Good to know. Thank you for that extra bit of insight, Steve. Only comes because you own one of those lenses. Let's go into uh, the next story, which, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really affect everybody, but I think it's important because it might show Apple trying to go after a slightly different market. Uh, reported on DP Review, Apple expands GPU options for the Mac Pro, offering up to 128 gigabytes of GDDR6 memory. So we've got upgrades available for the Mac Pro that obviously there are professionals that use Macs, but the really high end sort of multiple GPU type operations, they kind of went back to the, the PC side of things because the software For one there, reason. Uh, the, the interoperability of, you know, putting in multiple high-end GPUs into the system existed on those platforms, and it really didn't for quite a while, uh, or at least not in an upgradable type of way. Uh, but Apple is trying to change that, and you can get, if you've got deep enough pockets, uh, you can get the Radeon Pro W6800X, which is the, um, you know, as NVIDIA has their Quadro series as well as their regular uh, G4 series, although I think they're labeling them differently now, uh, RTX. Uh, you've got that, the pro version of the highest end consumer graphics card, which is probably very similar to the same silicon, but it has enterprise level drivers that are tried and tested. And, uh, you know, it's as mission critical as you can get for some of that hardware, which you want in a production environment. Uh, one of those as just an upgrade uh the uh before it, you if you're gonna say the price before you do this is the w 6800x mpx the regular card right um so the regular card uh where are we looking at here uh with 32 gigabytes of gddr6 memory would set you back an extra 2400 dollars that's just for the gpu it, it doesn't stop there though if you want to go for the w6900x with 32 gigabytes of memory, $5,600 for just the upgrade of the GPU. If you want two of those, well, double your Actually, money two here. Actually, two of the 6800s, the duo. Uh, well, I was going to say uh, uh, two of the 6900s. Oh, two of the 6900s, gotcha. It's, it's up a little bit higher in the list there, is $11,600 for graphics processors. So I... Apple is trying to court the people that have gone to the PC market uh, and the software has been developed there, right? You're going to have to develop very specific software for a specific platform. Now, you're going to ask somebody to spend nearly 12,000 US dollars for the highest end option. And I get that. That's not what everybody's going to go for. But everybody looks at that as the price point and say, if you want to get into uh, to the same thing on a PC, it's probably a lot less. I, I haven't pulled up the specs, but I know Apple pays a, or Apple charges a premium. And you might not have the same software that's available on the platform that has been tried and tested for many years because nobody's been developing that same kind of high-end software that could utilize that kind of hardware because it just wasn't there. It's a bit of a cat and mouse game here, I suppose. Uh, chicken and egg scenario where, you know, I guess you have to put out the hardware and then the software vendors might come to the table. But if nobody's producing the software, then nobody's going to buy the hardware for it. Right. What, what say you? You, uh, you are more in the Apple space than I am. So a couple of things. There's, there's another card that's available. So you've got 
The W6800X MPX, 32 gigabytes of GDDR6. That was the 2400 or 5200, depending on one or two. Then there's another version of the 6800, a W6800X Duo. That one is two cards effectively. So therefore it is 64 gigabytes of GDDR6. That's 4,600 or 9,600. And then the stupid expensive one at, at 5,600 or 12. But they're not just graphics cards. Each one of them includes four Thunderbolt 3 ports and an HDMI 2.0 port. And this will help people that are using software on a Mac like Final Cut Pro, right? But, and this is, this is a key distinction here, most people that need high graphics processing for things like Cinema 4D or Maya won't use this because it's not NVIDIA. So in, you cannot get NVIDIA cards on a Mac because Apple wants all drivers. First of all, Apple wants to write all of the drivers and they want them all written to metal. NVIDIA uses CUDA. Uh, to, to metal means that written to the lowest level of hardware itself, right? No, actually, metal is an interface. It's the graphic interface equivalent to CUDA, basically, on a Mac. So, so and, Apple, and AMD Apple is Metal is the Apple graphics uh, processing inside the OS. And AMD is willing to play ball and NVIDIA isn't? Uh, yes. NVIDIA will not give up. CUDA and the ability to, to write drivers is the way I understand it. And I was listening to Alex Lindy, Lindsay and Renee Ritchie talk about this the other day. And Alex, you know, brought up the, the Maya and Cinema 4D users that won't switch because they have to have, they want to have NVIDIA. Um, those are key distinctions that are going to keep people from using these for certain software packages, and they're going to stay on a PC. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you're not going to have those software vendors completely turn things upside down for such a small percentage of the market, a percentage of the market that is already being served just fine, right? And is happy. Exactly. Alex said when he hires like uh, somebody to use, you know, do serious, serious modeling or design type stuff, he's paying them $300 or whatever an hour, $325 an hour. You want them to use the fastest, most capable thing for the software package, not just in spec, but for the software packages that they're using. And that's NVIDIA today. It is. You know, it's I, I'm a big fan of AMD and, and what they've been doing. And, you know, I was a huge fan of ATI, uh, which AMD bought. And that's where the Radeon graphics cards came from. And they're a Canadian company. So I have a bias and affection there. But I, I'm not going to be blinded by that. You know, if it's going to completely ruin my, my workflow, like when I bought my, my latest laptop, it's, uh, it's a Surface Book 3. Uh, the only options were NVIDIA graphics, and I was okay with that. Everything else seemed to work just fine, and I went for the business version, which had a Quadro GPU in there that had some tensor cores and other things that might not be immediately useful. But I know that uh, video editing software and even plugins for Photoshop and, and other image editing tools are taking more and more advantage of these extra tools, and to have those was genuinely helpful for me. I would have to, on the AMD side, give up those advantages because the hardware uh, is incompatible with the software tools. It's just an apples and oranges comparison here. So you can, you can do, a. I mean, as much as I'm saying all of this, I would love to have one of these machines. Well, of course. Uh, I mean, you can get a Mac pro with a terabyte and a half of DDR4 ECC memory, which would be 
freaking amazing and awesome. But for those people that are in these specialized niche markets, it isn't about I want to be on a Mac or I want to be on Windows. It's what's the tool that's going to do the job for me and get my client job done right quick and I'm done and out. And for most of those, it's going to be a PC with an NVIDIA card. And, and let me add, I mentioned Alex Lindsay and Renee Ritchie. If you are into Apple, if you're into Macs and, and you're looking for a, a good thing, check out Mac Break Weekly because these are the guys that know it. This is who I learn a ton from listening to. Absolutely. And uh, and I, I genuinely uh, try to tune into that. And right after that is uh, Security Now on Tuesdays. Uh, it's a good podcast listening on the Security Twitter Now network. with Steve Gibson. That's right. And uh, you know what? Even if you're not a security professional, uh, I've never made it a pick of the week, and I don't know if I will, but I will give a good recommendation because they'll talk about security holes and various things, and I'll run and grab a patch for my router that was just published that day uh, yep. based on some exploit that is out in the wild, and you, know, you just got to make sure that you're as safe and secure as you possibly can be. Do you think, If you Steve, don't know Steve Gibson, by the way, GRC, I think it's GRC.com. Yeah. Uh, but he's the creator of the old long-lasting Spinrite software. And he is which was redoing invaluable right in troubleshooting stuff. Uh, he's working on Spinrite 6.1 right now, which is going to completely redesign the innards to allow it to work with modern computers and hard drives of whatever the capacities are available today. I'm looking forward to uh, getting my hands on that. But Steve, before we go on to the next story, do you think that Apple has a way where they can approach... Uh, whether it be studios or whether it be the software vendors to produce the software required to make this a complete package that would allow people to be courted by Apple back onto the platform at the very high end? Or is this just lip service to say, hey, look what we can do on paper to have that you know machine to put up on a pedestal and everybody can aspire to it, but the people that are aspiring to that, they're never actually going to get it. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. I would actually argue that a lot of the software is cross-platform. I mean, a number of the programs that you would use do exist cross-platform. It's just that the people that are using them in the big houses are going to make a choice based on more than just a fast machine with that software. There are people that would use this machine to do those two apps that, that I had heard Alex mention, Maya and Cinema 4D. I believe they're both cross-platform, and, and correct me in show notes or whatever if I'm wrong, but there are people that will use this to do those types of things. It's just if you're at that level where you're doing major industry work, you're just not going to risk it. And so I don't know that there's anything that they could do other than put a machine in front of them and demo to them that, you know, here's what's capable. We think you could rewrite your software to use Metal to get the same polygon count that you're getting out of NVIDIA. Yeah, they and would have to do that. And, and I, I don't know if that's going to happen. I, I Honestly, I hope it does. Not that I'm even in that space. But those machines are beautiful. I wish for more of them to exist in the world. Yeah, I, I would love to have one of these. But, you know, again. And, and by the way, a lot of these machines don't need that kind of power. If, I don't know that you would need a ton of graphics power if you were doing a ton of channels in Logic for example. Uh, but you might. There are some visuals in, in Logic. I don't know, but it's it's not my world. But It depends still. if you're, you know, how many pixels you're pushing, if your production workflow is 8K, and there's a lot of factors involved. But let's go on to our next story. 
story number four. And I, I found this one was, was quite fun from F stoppers, um, how to annoy a photographer. And this is coming from uh, Justin Mott, uh, who recorded a video, some of the, the questions or requests that he has, uh, you know, had to deal with from clients over the years. Steve, did, did you watch this video? Yes, I did. I mean, some of them are pretty basic, uh, you know, and I've, I've been through some of them. Have you ever been asked, uh, you know, if you're invited to a wedding, oh, can you bring your camera along? It would be great if you can blah, 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 because so-and-so, the, the wedding photographer is only booked for this amount of time, or, you know, we weren't able to find somebody and we know you're really good with your camera. And, um, yeah, it, it's happened to, uh, I think pretty well anybody who's got a decent camera and a good bit of skill to back that up and somebody Even in the phone. family gets married. I had, a, I had a good friend whose band was playing close by and this was literally last Tuesday. And he said, are you going to come out and see it? I said, yeah, you know, I'm going to come out and watch you guys. Uh, my wife and I will go. He goes, cool. Could you, could you maybe take some cell phone pictures of us just for social media? And so my wife is sitting there and Steve's walking around trying to get some pictures for their social media. Uh, you know, it's, we're all used to it, right? If you, if you've got a skill set and the tools, people are going to want to, um, take advantage of that. The problem for me is I don't want to just do a half-ass job. You know, if I'm going to be doing it, my, my name's going to be behind those images. I'm going to take that as a responsibility to deliver something awesome. And that takes a lot of effort, not just taking the pictures, but, and there's liability in doing that. I mean, you've got very expensive camera gear out in the field in a chaotic environment and people drinking and such. Um, I've talked to people that have had their gear stolen uh, at, uh, at events like weddings and what a kicker if you weren't actually being paid for it. I wonder what your insurance would do in that particular case. There's so many different facets to that. And then the editing and everything afterwards. And it doesn't stop there because then they might ask for prints or you might give them their photographs and you know people, they're they're not going to back them up properly. And, uh, you know, you might say to them that you're going to keep them for a year or what have you. You're not going to delete them because somewhere in the back of your mind, they're going to come back to you five or six years later and they're going to ask for them because they lost them. And so in perpetuity, you are now the uh, the caretaker of those images and you did it for free. I've learned now to say or no. for Or for just not a lot. Sure. I had a band I shot. I know them. I wanted to help them. They're, they were young. I did it really inexpensively. And again, this happened this past month. Um, I don't know where we put the pictures that you gave us. Is there any way we could get them again? It happens. Yeah, it does. And you know what? I, I've learned to say no to this. You know, I, I give nice wedding gifts and things like that. It's not like I'm a Scrooge about that. Uh, but, you know, I try to draw a line between the personal and the professional because it just kind of, it, it muddies the waters a little bit in a way that it just makes me feel uncomfortable after the fact. Uh, another one that uh, Justin said in the video um, was if somebody, a client asks for somebody else to shadow you for uh for a period of time for a day of shooting and so on and there's so many issues with that i encourage you to watch the video and and see what justin has to say about these examples and how there's so much setup work that goes into getting a perfect shot and having somebody stand over your shoulder and just take exactly the perfect shot after all of your skill and lighting and set design and makeup artists and wardrobe picking and everything else was all put together and then the client at the end of the day looks and says, oh, well, the guy that worked for free shadowing you got the, 
a shot just the same as you. Why, why do I have to pay you for that? So I don't really want people shadowing me either. I mean, I do workshops and I show people how to do this and I set everything up for them and they can claim those shots as their own and that's fine. Um, but uh, beyond that, Steve, are there any to you that, uh, that are bothersome, that, that annoy you when people ask you something about photography in general that you could add to that list? Not really. I mean, he really, he covered everything. And by the way, he was kind enough in his description on YouTube, if you go to the YouTube page instead of watching the, um, the embedded version at F-Stoppers, uh, to say that the official rant starts at 3.51. So he makes it almost four minutes in talking about other stuff before he gets into it. So if you go to the YouTube page, it's easy to jump to to that. For me, it's pretty much everything you just said. Like I've had the shadowing thing happen where they were supposed to shadow me for a particular class that they were in. It was at a concert. I had to jump through hoops to get permission to bring them to the concert, to get them in a photo pit. And the idea was they were supposed to photograph the day in the life of a photographer. And I look over and he's photographing the band. Instead of, he was supposed to be photographing effectively me. Now, the band is a much better subject, but he really wasn't supposed to be doing it. The truth was, nobody got in trouble. I don't really care. He got some work for his portfolio, whatever. But I've had all of that happen. The wedding one, I don't shoot weddings. I have no desire to. The, hey, uh, would you like to come over for a backyard party? The band is going to be playing. Sure, that'd be great. Uh, I'll talk to my wife, make sure the date's open. Cool. Could you bring your gear? Ah, <laughs> oh, well, you know, that should have come first. Um, luckily, I'm like you. I am totally willing to do a job for free or inexpensively by my choice. I'm totally willing if somebody offers uh, to pay me to say, you know what? No, go for it. Use them, do what you want. But it's got to come from me not from them. And I'm like you, I separate business from pleasure. I generally don't have a problem saying to somebody, you know, um, at that point we're crossing into a work world, you know, do you want me to give you a quote? Yeah. And, you and, know, I, and, I that, think that and by the way, how you word that is, is how you retain the, 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 the higher position in the bargaining unit is, you know, cause it's uncomfortable for everybody, especially if it's family, but if you just say to somebody, you know, at that point, we're getting into what I do for a living. And, you know, do you want me to quote you on that? And just say it bluntly and, and matter of fact. And most people aren't offended by that. I, I think that that's an important statement to make and, and to just be professional about it. Uh, you know, be polite, obviously. But I think that there's a breakdown between where people associate a photographer versus their equipment. I think a lot of non-photographers think of the camera gear doing all the heavy lifting and, oh, he's got the gear. So, you know, it doesn't take any effort for, for him to just utilize it on this. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, you got that one friend with the pickup truck, right? It's like, can you come over and help us move a couch because you've got the truck to do it, right? It doesn't take any extra skill to, you know, lift up a, you know, a couch and put it in the back of a flatbed. And people are trying to associate photography to that kind of mentality. And, and that's, it's, it's a falsehood, sure, but uh, you only know it once you have the skills to illustrate how the equipment is properly utilized. For me, like when I do art shows, haven't done them for a while, I miss them. But I would know that I'm not going to sell a, a print to somebody when they walk by and they say, oh, 
wow, you must have a, an amazing camera. What camera do you shoot with? And I just say, I shoot with a lot of cameras. I, I've used a lot of cameras over the years. You're seeing my, my life's body of work here. It could be a camera from 20 years ago. It could be a point and shoot camera uh, and everything in between from the latest and greatest technology to a tiny micro four thirds body. And if there's any image that really stands out to you, I'll tell you more than the camera that took it. I'll start getting into the techniques. Although I rarely get that far in the conversation before they've wandered off. That's a problem, but yet you identify it. And so long as it's identifiable, then you can work with it. Another issue for me, and this is going to lend into to my pick of the week in a bit, but um, I get a lot of people that Cole called me, uh, you know, I get an email out of the blue. Uh, it could be uh, there was a, a musical ensemble that was uh, wanting to use one of my snowflake images on the cover of a Christmas album that they were putting together. Uh, and they said, oh, we'll, we'll give you a copy of the album. And we'll put in a good word for you on social media. It's not really how that works for me. I, especially if you're coming to me out of the blue, I have no idea who you are. I, you, know, you might be doing good in the world. You might be a, a charity that is saving lives and feeding hungry. You've come to me without really much more of an introduction than hi don we love your work and, well, and, and arguably they are the result of that oh we'll put a good word in for you on social media and the answer is well i've already done that and that's probably how you found me so <laughs> you're enough. the person i'm trying to get to come to me through social media to pay me yes and so i turn down offers of uh you know promotion and exposure quite often and you know what sometimes i get to sit down in front of a large audience uh, and I, I'll do it pro bono just because I know that that audience is my target audience and I'm doing much more than just lending an image. I'm lending my voice in a presentation to different organizations. Uh, case in point, I'm doing one to, uh, to PSA, uh, later this month. I'll put a link to that in, in the show notes. Any PSA members, uh, Photographic Society of America, uh, can, uh, can tune in and check that out. And I think that'll be a lot of fun. And yeah, I'll be able to promote my book during that. And I'll probably get some sales from that. So that'll be uh, beneficial. If it was just an organization wanting to use my photograph and maybe a little byline with my name on it, absolutely not. There's zero value whatsoever. I did a trade once, Steve. Um, this was back when phone books were still a thing, just on the very edge of them really being in proper existence. And they wanted to use a photograph of a wolf that I had taken. And it was a captive wolf, but it was still, you know, howling with the, you know, uh, the frosty breath in the, uh, in the morning. And it was a good picture. It ended up on the cover of a phone book and they wouldn't pay me for it. Instead, they gave me a full page ad in the phone book to advertise my services and everything. I could put whatever I want on that. And I did. I got exactly one call and they asked me if I could shoot a wedding. Nowhere yeah. in the ad did it say anything that I would be a wedding photographer or a portrait photographer. And so I had to say, I'm sorry, I'm not in that business. But you're a photographer, aren't you? Yes, I am. But uh, it's like being a mechanic doesn't necessarily mean I can fix an airplane if I can fix a car, right? Like there's just so many. Anyhow, I, I digress. Well, and, it was and the other one that to me, the other one I get similar is I get tons of emails. Hey, you know, listen to the podcast or saw your work. Uh, I, I'm really looking to get into concert photography. I'd really, I, this happened on Instagram the other day. Um, I'd really love to pick your brain. Is there any way that we can get on the, the phone and, and chat? 
or they just send me, I've had people literally just send me a link to a website. Could you go through these and tell me what you think? Or they'll send me 10 in email, full resolution pictures in an email saying, could you give me your feedback on these? And sometimes if I'm feeling really, you know, relaxed and kind, I'll sit down and I'll literally put comments on each one. Other times I'll usually say, you know, look, really busy. Don't have time to go through your whole website. If you'd like to pick three shots, I'll go through those. Um, but people tend to look at other photographers and just think that time doesn't exist. And that, again, is the same thing I said before. I will answer every one of those if I can. The problem is when you don't and someone then gets offended. Oh, talk Almost about people I getting answer. offended with me on the internet. Let me tell you a story, Steve. Have oh, you yes. S- did you see my posts on Twitter yesterday and today? So, yeah. I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but I defend my copyright, you know, and I, I have been searching using reverse image searching tools or sometimes even typing certain phrases into Facebook and searching for photos and finding my images misused. And so I typically will send over a dozen takedown notices a day. Uh, today I'm probably at about two dozen between Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And who knows, maybe I'll do more later, but occasionally I'll get people that come up to me and they're rather irate that I sent a takedown notice because they infringed on my copyright. And, uh, yeah, I, I try to stay calm. I, I try to stay collected and informative and so on and so forth. And I'm often met with vitriolic responses. Uh, you know, there's a certain level of ignorance that almost immediately flares to arrogance. And it just... It, Your it, Facebook it, conversation comes to mind. Yes. So I, I have... Check, check out my Twitter feed. The link is, of course, in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, they shouldn't be too far down the stream if you're listening to this shortly after it's broadcast. But there's a few of them. And sometimes I even try to write a fairly uh, thoughtful response. And I notice that it doesn't send because the person has blocked me uh, immediately after they called me stupid. And, you know, it's just, I, I mean, it rolls off my back now because I've done it so many times. But yeah, there's a lot of disrespect for photographers out there. People just use our work without putting any value associated to it. And I think we should do whatever we can to put a stop to that. Speaking of which, that might bring us to a bonus story. If you have time, Steve, do you have time? I have all the time in the world, my friend. So this was brought up to me by a listener of the show. Thank you. You know who you are. Um, From J.D. Supra. uh, And it's written by Thompson Coburn, LLP. The uh, title is Too Infringing to Bear. New York Court Sides with Photographer in Suit Over Embedded Image. So, you know, we've talked about this in the past uh, on on this podcast, and and I think you and me personally, Steve, I believe there was a a topic come up uh, within the last year where Instagram had basically stated that, you know, if you embed an Instagram post onto a social media platform we do not uh, explicitly give you a license to use that. You know, you've got to seek that out from whoever posted that content themselves. And that was groundbreaking. And, and I thought that that would be a bit of an upheaval on the internet at large. And I haven't seen many cases, but this one is slightly related to that. 
So I'll read a bit from the article uh, here in Nicklin versus Sinclair Broadcasting Group. Nature photographer Paul Nicklin shot a short video of a starving polar bear and posted it to his Facebook and Instagram accounts, urging others to consider the impact of global warming. Sinclair Broadcasting and other news organizations embedded the video on their own sites. Nicklin sued Sinclair, alleging the embedded video was a copyright infringement. Sinclair asked the court to dismiss the complaint, arguing that embedding a video is not copyright infringement and alternatively, the use of the video was fair use. Now, fair use, that's a tough bar to to climb over uh, in a lot of these areas because, number one, you have to be carefully critiquing not... um, uh, not just the the news of the video, but the content therein, and critiquing the work of the artist that created it, uh, and you really have to, or using it in a transformative type of way. I mean, there's there's a lot of things you can just I, redisplaying it, just taking a video and saying, "Hey, audience, here." Does that, not generally constitute fair use, or more to the point, does not generally meet the what is it four specific requirements of now, fair use. I'm not a lawyer. Neither are you, Steve. Yes. Um, so we, we got to state that, that we're starting to talk but about But I will say stuff. I record an awful lot of Law & Order, the original. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. Um, in this case, we have to go back to what was called the server rule. Uh, Steve, what's that? So the server rule was, again, not a lawyer. So my terminology is going to be off here, but I'm going to, I'm going to, for sake of better terminology, say it was a doctrine that was followed wherein the, the rights landed or the usage landed based on the server that it was on. Meaning if Don posts a photo and stores it on his server, if I embed it on my webpage, the photo is effectively still on Don's server meaning he still has control, he still has rights. And I only infringed it when I took the photo from his server and put it on mine. And therefore, the origin of the the artwork, the image, the video, whatever, that's what mattered most. So many courts have disagreed with the server rule, by the way. And uh, yes, and and so in here, um, the, the Copyright Act seems to stipulate that an image is displayed, not how an image is displayed, which is where the server rule would come into play, how it's being served from a third party and so on. But simply that it's being displayed is enough to constitute infringement on copyright. Now that that's a, I don't want to and, and let me let me let me add something there if if you don't mind. Yeah. One of the reason for that is because and and by the way really if you read it it does just relate to display because the copyright act references rights specific rights and one of those rights is the quote display right. So that's just correct. the fact that you are displaying it takes away my right to control its display. Doesn't matter how you got it there. Now, that that's, I don't want to say it's a slippery slope because it does kind of slip a little bit and then you hit a dead end. But um, I, I was thinking, how could this be taken out of context and, and pushed in a different direction? And the idea I came up with was a mirror, right? If you're wearing like a 
you know, you've got a Gucci bag or something around, uh, around your shoulder and you Let's say you're wearing a costume, you're wearing a costume designed specifically by a designer for one, uh, uh, Broadway play. Let's say you're wearing hey, here's a good one. Let's say that you're wearing the actual, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi or Darth Vader costume, the, the which, actual, may have been, which may have been copywritten. Trademark. The actual Barney the Dinosaur costume. Who knows? Exactly. Right? Uh, you know, there's probably a copyright in there. And you stand in front of a mirror and you look at yourself. Well, the mirror is technically displaying the copyrighted material. Scares and- me you went to Barney. I just, I'm sorry. It's in my head. Now. <laughs> I have a five-year-old daughter. It, you know what? Okay. Barney is old, but it still comes across the YouTube stream once in a while. Oh, yeah. And I, I shut it down whenever I see it, but it's still there and it haunts my dreams. But I, okay, so you have that copyright that's reflected back and that's technically displaying, although it would be a really tough legal case to say anything about that would be copyright infringement. It still bears the same reference in the law as qualifying. And so any defense would probably start to try to poke holes into it by mentioning things like that. I don't think that they get very far, but there's there's probably other things that if you've got a, a legal research team and a high-paid lawyer, they might be able to find ways to uh, to circumvent that exact meaning. No, I, 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 when in the green room before we started recording, I said something because this was going to be an optional story and we may not have done it. And I, I made a comment and Don looked at me and goes, well, uh, the mirror shoots it all down and literally stopped me in my tracks because I had to process that for a minute. And the only thing I could come up with is it would be a tough legal fight because both are being seen at the same time in the same place. And so, if, but technically you are redisplaying, but here's what's interesting is what the judge found. And again, not a lawyer. I would love Ed Greenberg's take on this, but what the judge found was defendant violates the author's exclusive right to display an audiovisual work, because this was a video, by the way, if they cause a copy of the work or individual image uh, of the work to be seen, whether directly or by any device or process known in the year that the, the law was passed or, or, yeah. or developed thereafter, which was 76. The exclusive display right set forth in the Copyright Act is technology neutral. It's not concerned with how it's shown, but just whether it is shown. It Again, it all comes down to that display right. So, and, I, and I think that is going to end up being key. The photographer didn't win the case. We, we have to stipulate no. this. Uh, because Sinclair Broadcasting, request. Yeah, Sinclair Broadca- uh, Broadcasting was, uh, they put forward a motion to dismiss based on this being fair use, et cetera, as we've just discussed. Uh, and the conclusion on the court document says, the court hereby denies the motion to dismiss because Nicklin has stated a prima facie, facie, I'm not sure how I pronounce that word. Fascia. Fascia. Prima, uh, prima facie. Fascia, uh, it's actually fa- a. Uh, case for copyright infringement and because the Sinclair defendants have not met their difficult burden of proving a fair use def- uh, defense on the sheer basis of the pleadings. So this is that uh, that whole idea that Instagram was stating that, no, you don't get a license to use this work when you embed it onto another website. We are now seeing court cases come thus far where people cannot simply dismiss the case based on the fact that they're embedding a video and calling that a day. I love what the judge did, though, because the judge, I, 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 in my head, I can see the judge going to, to his clerk, 
I have to directly address the server rule here, right? It's got to be done. So the court noted that the act only requires that the defendant display, i.e. show the copyrighted work, that it does not require that they make a copy of it to their own server first, because under the server rule, and this, I love this wording, quote, under the server rule, a photographer who promoted his work on Instagram or a filmmaker would surrender control over how, when, and by whom their work is subsequently shown, contrary to the broad display right under the Copyright Act. And what he's saying is, if the server rule were true, then simply by posting anything to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, anything that YouTube, anything that could be embedded elsewhere, you've lost 100% of your control of it at that point because anybody can embed it legally. Yeah, and and so we have to scrape back from that a little bit and properly establish that, yeah, your copyright still is maintained when you post something on social media, and that should yes. always be true. Not just from Instagram, but Twitter or Facebook. I, I don't really see a lot of people embedding Facebook stuff, although I'm sure that's a thing. Uh, and any other technologies that will exist in the future, different platforms come and go all the time and they might not be popular. They might be, but that shouldn't matter. You should have the right to display regardless of the technological means uh, behind the scenes that are making it happen. Now tell him what he found for the fair use part. Uh, I don't have that up on, cause I was digging through the 20 page legal document. So start me off, Steve. Uh, okay. Find my so place fair use here. part. There's four factors in fair use who I, which I cannot remember verbatim right now. But what he found was that one of the factors was in favor of fair use, but three of the four were either neutral or against fair use. So at that point, he he declined the dismissal. Request. Yeah, and and he said it was a difficult burden to prove, and it it almost always is when you're not keeping a fair use usage in mind from the beginning. Now, if you are and you have those four pillars in mind, you might be able to write an article around the usage of the material being fair use. You know, we discuss a lot of images at the center of legal disputes on this podcast and the discussion of that as a newsworthy event where we are critiquing the entire process of why the image has come into public notoriety and so on and so forth. That then, so long as we do it right, qualifies us for fair use exactly. Exemptions, and we are allowed to not only talk about the image, but I could probably display it on the website, uh, so long as every one of those checkboxes is, uh, is is put in play. Now, by, I, by the way, the the one factor he found that was in their favor was purpose and character of use was in their favor. What bothered me about this whole thing, though, was, and it's their job, I get that, but Sinclair made an argument that the court's ruling would impose far-reaching and ruinous liability and grind the internet to a halt. I hate those kind of arguments. Yeah, because then that makes- That's, that's fear, uncertainty, fear and that's FUD in a courtroom. And it's not going to grind the internet to a halt. You know, people have been using the internet, infringing on copyright exhaustively for decades they shouldn't have been, and I'm uh, I'm a great example of somebody who has his copyrights infringed on a really regular basis. 
And I have the legal ramifications to either send uh, an infringement case to a copyright attorney, for which after we finish recording this episode, I've got a good number of letters from one of my US attorneys that I have to review that are going out for commercial infringements. This is a constant ongoing thing for me. And I have new cases going out with my Canadian attorneys. And uh, every Sunday, I, uh, I have potentially new cases that show up in my pick rights inbox. Pick rights is a company that deals with claims internationally. And so if I have an infringement in you know, Slovakia or, you know, uh, Bulgaria or the United Kingdom or Italy, France, etc., uh, mostly across Europe, uh, then I can go to them and I don't get nearly as much, but I can engage a legal team that will at least do something more than just get it taken down off the internet. Because not only do we need to protect our rights, we need to get paid for our work as well. And that is a far bigger deterrent than just slapping somebody on the wrist with a takedown notice, right? Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. So I want to see where this goes. Uh, I've got a feeling that this case will not go to final judgment. That's just my opinion on this. Once that motion to dismiss was uh, denied, I think that uh, Nicklin and Sinclair are going to go to the bargaining table and something is going to be settled out of court because um, of course they would. Uh, I shouldn't say that. If this sets a precedent, I would love it. Uh, but I don't think they're going to allow it to go that far based on Sinclair's current position. Yeah, it's it, again, this is one not the end of the case, but this is one of those copyright ones that at least the early the early leaning of the court uh, is beneficial to the photographer side of the argument, not the money side of the argument. I hope that they pay all of, uh, of Paul Nicklin's legal fees as well through this process, because I don't want anybody to have to pay to defend their, their copyrights. Um, right. So there we go. Uh, that is our bonus story for the week. And that brings us to our picks of the week. But before we get into them, Steve, I know we've talked a lot on this podcast about where people can find you, but let's do it again right now. Let's make sure that nobody misses where Steve Brazel is hanging out online. Uh, I'm in the office. It's all the way, if you go all the way to the end of the hallway, <laughs> it's, oh, sorry. Uh, no, you can find me at uh, stevebrazel.com for my photography. All my links are there, including the podcast. But if you want to go straight to the podcast, it's behindtheshot.tv. On social media, I'm pretty much only on Instagram and Twitter. I have accounts on Facebook. I've just pretty much abandoned them. Uh, it's at Steve Brazel, like the country Brazil, but two L's. And at behindtheshot.tv on either Instagram or Twitter. Follow me. Reach Oh, Behind the Shot on YouTube is where we do the critique shows. Uh, and, uh, yeah, reach out, say hi. All right. And, uh, you can find those links at photogeekweekly.com as you can find all the links to where you can find me, uh, my website, uh, if you want to license or buy a print from me or buy a book, you know, all of those things to support artists are there as well, including a tip jar on photogeekweekly.com. And I want to say thank you. I don't want to give names specifically to people unless I've uh, talked to them beforehand, but I had a really nice tip come in this week and uh, you know who it was uh, that gave that to me. And I genuinely appreciate that. And uh, thank you very much. That helps pay for the bills of hosting the podcast and other associated costs of just doing this online stuff. So, um, and let, let me add to that. What he just said is so true. Uh, you know, every episode Don does, he not only has to get the guest, find the stories, which can take a lot of time because there's a lot of stories to pick the ones that you want. 
edit it, which isn't a huge amount of time the way that Don does it and, and he records clean audio, but still edit it, put it up somewhere to serve it, a server that he's got to pay for in hosting and then a, the normal website hosting. And it's the same with my podcast. So those little things really help. So to everybody that listens to this podcast, Photo Geek Weekly, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, you know, you're, you're, you're part of a community and we're, we all are. You know, It's me and Steve talking, but I've heard a lot of people say that they're like a, a third person at the table and they just have their, their, their lips shut. Uh, but it feels like they're part of that, that greater dialogue. And I'm really happy that the podcast has been able to, uh, to become that. So this kind of goes back to some of the stories we were just talking about, which is why I made it my pick of the week. Um, you know, how to annoy a photographer and, and how to be asked to work for exposure. So I rarely mention like a, a Twitter account as my pick, but I am this week. Um, it is uh, the Twitter account for exposure underscore TXT. And this is an account I followed for quite a while. They've got a great number of followers, almost a quarter million followers now. And oftentimes they will retweet or get permission uh, to, to share stories about people that were asked to work for free uh, or, you know, unpaid internship asking people to move mountains uh, or people asked to use decades worth of professional skills for $5 uh, and so on and so forth. The the list, the number of tweets that this account has is completely exhaustive. Uh, I don't see uh, how many tweets that this account has put out, but I've been following them for for a long time. And Steve, did you get a chance to review this account? Were you aware of it before? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm following it now. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can't really do it justice, but there are so many, uh, I'll just read, I'll, I'll, I'll pick one randomly. Maybe Steve, you could do one as well. It's like, hi there, looking for five female actors, no pay, but I'll give you a discounted photo shoot for a future date. DM me for more information. Um, or somebody says, um, I have this idea for a comic. I think it's pretty good. Uh, if you want to do it as a time kill or something, please DM. No payment of anything, something for fun. Don't leave me hanging. These are obviously yeah. young people that really don't know what they're dealing with and they're just asking for something for free. But if you keep going, you will find professional agencies, very large corporations asking for somebody to work for free or for peanuts. And it is just depressing how often it's there. I want every photographer, everybody that wants to uh, to get paid for their work, see all of the angles people will ask to get away from paying you. Is there any of them that stood out for you, Steve? Yeah, there's one here. Urgently needed. We're looking for a passionate and enthusiastic volunteer photographer, videographer, volunteer to grow our to join our growing team and play a vital role in everything we do working hours as required supporting events fundraisers and special projects and then when you get deeper you have to take photos and video know how to use the camera have your own equipment uh work flexible hours keyword there being work submit photos to the team be able to have your own transport <clears throat> and drive excuse me know how to use editing software, and then other duties includes wear your name badge at all times, attend and contribute to meetings, uh, and it's all volunteer. All volunteer. That's quite the volunteer work there. Uh, I, it's so bothersome when, when I know that this is out there, and this is kind of like a shaming oh, account. And, and this one, 
familiarize yourself and comply with the health and safety policy, fire procedure, equal opportunities and discrep- uh, disciplinary and grievous pr- grievance procedure where appropriate, which means this isn't a mom-pop shop. They have policies, written policies for employees. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I'm just going to click on another one. I, I haven't even uh, read this one. I'm just going to read this one cold trailer for a call car commercial contest. There's a contest where they're asking for you to re-edit an existing car commercial winner gets a fancy drone. And I like fancy drones, but I don't like paying for fancy drones. It's not going to be a lot of lines, but it's going to be just a voice over some clips of a car with some music and some sound effects. I don't have a script yet, but I'm looking for a man's voice because it's a sports car and it's the target demo, you know, midlife crisis great yeah that's that's yeah. fantastic um <laughs> so check out the account if only to educate you with the type of uh of calls for your skills out there that you should really i, I don't know if there's any way to redress these and actually get people to pay uh i think that these are just all walk away moments but we all have to be aware of them to know when we walk away from something and don't waste your time on it so again, for exposure underscore TXT. Yes. Um, so that's my pick, Steve. What have you got for me? So my pick came about in a strange way. When I bought all this new camera gear, I bought, you know, each camera came with a battery and I bought two extra batteries. And these cameras come with the newer version of the Canon battery, the LPE6NH. So as I was talking with the sales guy, I got everything in there and I wanted a dual charger. So we ordered a Watson Duo LCD charger with two charging plates. Neither one of us noticing that the first bullet point under key features is not compatible with the Canon LPE6NH. Specifically says that it has two LPE6 or LPE6N plates and these batteries have the exact same mounts. They're just higher capacity. It doesn't work with those. So I called uh, B&H back up. They took it back. The day it landed back to them, they shipped me out the new one that I ordered, and I am loving it. It's also sitting in my hand right here. It is the Manfrotto ProCube. ProCube is all one word. Professional Twin Charger. And the the Manfrotto ProCube comes in three versions. For Canon batteries, the LPE6, E6N, and LPE6NH. And the the LPE8 and E17 as well, looking at the page here. Also works for Sony batteries, certain ones. Look it up and you can see, but it's the FW50, the FZ100, and the BX1. And also for Nikon batteries, the EL14, 15, and 25 batteries. So I got this thing and uh, it is awesome. First of all, it's got two battery slots. And it's relatively compact. One. <clears throat> yeah, it is, I mean, I don't know what, maybe three and a half inches, maybe even two and a half inches wide. It's about a square, maybe two inches tall, two and a half inches square. And it's got an LCD panel on the front. That's the only downside was the Watson, the LCD panel was pointing up on the top of a unit at an angle. This one's on the front. But, but there's a reason for that, right? Well, I mean, I suppose they could have angled it. Well, it would have been easier to see. But with the added attachment that goes on the top of the unit, it would be difficult to have an LCD screen there. No, but I mean, they could have angled the front. They could have designed it not square, in other words. But yeah, there is an attachment that goes on the top that lets you charge four AA batteries. 
You take that off and these plates are interchangeable. It came with different plates. So the one I have in there is for my batteries. They give you what is effectively a SIM removal tool, like for your phone to remove the plates. It has a USB port on the back so you can charge your phone with it at the same time. And it will display to you the milliamp hours and the charge per battery in each individual slot. It charges faster if you only put one battery in than if you put two batteries in. Uh, I've tested it already. It works fantastically. Works with my newer E5 or, or R5 and R6 batteries. And it's $80 at B&H. Yeah, seventy nine ninety nine. Um, which I should also add, uh, if you are shopping at B&H, um, you might find a copy of my new book available at B&H if you are in the United States and you want free shipping on my book. If you want to buy it from me, I appreciate that. That's uh, I get more money that way, uh, obviously. But B&H bought a number of copies of my book wholesale so that through the US market, if you don't want to pay shipping for it, B&H has your back. Um, and you can buy it through B&H. And if you're in Canada, uh, the camera store out in Calgary, any order over $99 from them goes out with free shipping. And if my book is $75, you just got to add on something small, set of extension tubes, a, a close-up filter, uh, a new camera battery or a charger like this, and you will go over that threshold of free shipping. So the camera store in Canada and uh, B&H photo in the United States are now carrying my new book and I'll make sure I put some and links it, to that. And it's so much easier to charge two batteries at once and I don't have affiliate codes, but if Don has an affiliate code, get his or get somebody like Aunt Pruitt's affiliate code. If you're going to buy from a B&H, doesn't cost you more to use an affiliate code and you can support creators that way too, whoever your favorite creator is. When I post uh, links from BNH, my affiliate code is hidden within. So uh, unbeknownst to you, you may have already been supporting me if you've checked that out. But uh, no, I, I think, Steve, that the, the, the actual first party manufacturers that, you know, you, you buy the camera, it comes with a charger, right? I don't know of any camera that, that doesn't, although a lot of them are now doing USB-C uh, charging exclusively, especially on smaller camera bodies. Uh, and I know that I charge my, my Lumix GX9. I think it came with a charger. I've never used it because I've just plugged it into a USB port and it's charged that way. And that's been fine. Um, but, you know, when you're doing concert work, you got two cameras, you're going to have uh, at least two batteries, one in each camera, you're going to have extras because you never know what's going to happen. Uh, and and if you've got battery grips, like a lot of the people in my world, I don't like battery grips myself. I think they're bulky. But if you have a battery grip, now you've got and two cameras, you've got four batteries charged on you at the same time that you got to charge. Exactly. So having at least something that will do two at a time, I think is wonderful. So thank you, uh, Manfrotto, for making the Pro-Q Professional Twin Charger. Uh, does not exist for my Lumix cameras, although I'm sure there are other solutions out there should I need to look one up. But uh, that's a great pick, Steve, and something that people don't usually think about uh, battery chargers when they're thinking about gear upgrades, but it could save you time. Uh, and that's what we're all losing these days. There's never enough time in each day. Uh, and to that end, I have, uh, I don't want to say wasted, but I've taken an hour and a half of everybody's time on this podcast. And I appreciate you listening to this longer episode of the show. We didn't break any records on this one, but we did come close with that extra story. I'm glad you were prepared for it, Steve. Uh, I couldn't have imagined having that conversation with anybody but you. So I'm glad we were able to get that one in there. Pleasure was all mine. And uh, thanks again to everybody listening. Um, the world is in a very interesting place right now. I, I, 
I'm almost ready to be uh, fully, va- I'm fully vaccinated, but I'm still, the clock is ticking on the two weeks since I got that second jab, but I'm looking at the numbers and I'm thinking to myself, it's too early to tell people to necessarily go out into the world all across the world when certain parts are not doing so great right now. So for the time being, bear with me while I sign off saying it's still time to stay in and shoot. Oh,